Psalm 33, the steadfast love of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope to salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, very good to see you all. Good morning, John. It's very good to see you all. Um, let me add my welcome to, to Willie's. If we haven't met before, I know that there'll be some folks here perhaps visiting over the summertime. Um, let me extend a very warm welcome to you. And if you've been here a million times before, let me also uh, welcome you very, very warmly. And we do hope you have a, a really super time with us. Please do stick around at the end of the service if you're able to do that and chat to one another, get to know one another a bit better. That's a really important part of our time together uh, as we meet Sunday by Sunday. And now, as, as Willie has mentioned, we're continuing our summer series in the Psalms this morning eh, with Psalm 33. So let me please encourage you, if you're able, to have that open in front of you eh, over the next few minutes, if you're able. I think that'll be a help eh, both to me and, eh, more importantly, to you. Eh, and before we delve into that Psalm together, though, let me ask for God's help of us over the next few minutes. Let's pray together. Eh, our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the Psalms. We thank you that you've spoken to us in your word, using different styles, in, in narrative, in letters, but also in song. And we pray that as we study this song, this psalm together today, that our view of, of who you are and of what you're like would be shaped and sharpened so that we would know you as you really are and praise you as we really ought. We ask all this 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, many of you will know that that the author C.S. Lewis, who wrote a series of stories called The Chronicles of Narnia, was himself a committed Christian. He became a Christian as a a grown-up, as an adult, and uh, he wrote pretty extensively about the Christian faith. Uh, But as he got older, he reflected back on his early years as a Christian, and he wrote that as as a young believer, he got quite confused and actually fairly annoyed by the Bible's persistent demand, particularly in the Psalms, that people should praise God. He found it quite jarring. And what made it even worse for Lewis is that God himself called people to praise him. Just listen to what Lewis wrote. What kind of God is he who incessantly demands that his people tell him how great he is. He pictured God to be vain and insecure, someone who needed compliments to boost his self-esteem. And now we're looking at this group of Psalms on Sunday mornings through July and August, and our Psalm for today begins in a way in which, well, I would imagine would have put a young C.S. Lewis's teeth on edge. Verse 1. Shout, For joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. In Psalm 33, we, the the, the readers of the audience, we are called to praise God, to rejoice in God. And before we get into the, the, the meat of the psalm itself, well, I wonder how that prospect makes you feel this morning. The idea that we're going to spend the next 25 minutes or so being called to find joy in God, to praise him. Some of us might be delighted that's the ground we're on this morning. But others might react a bit like the young C.S. Lewis. Might think it's a bit off of God to call us to praise him, that he sounds a bit vain, a bit self-obsessed. Or perhaps you don't feel quite as uptight about it as Lewis clearly did. Maybe instead you just feel a bit indifferent. You might be a Christian facing a patch of spiritual lukewarmness right now, and you're currently thinking you could be doing without being told for the next few minutes to praise God, because frankly, well, you just don't feel like it. Well, if any of that does resonate with you, if you either feel a bit lukewarm, perhaps, or maybe even quite cold towards the prospect of praising God, then, well, you've come to the right place in Psalm 33. Because in Psalm 33, we aren't beaten around the head with a command to praise God. No, we are persuaded to praise him. The psalmist gives us three great big reasons that make God, the God of the Bible, truly praiseworthy. Firstly, he says that God is worth praising because his word is good and powerful, verses 4 to 9. Secondly, he says God is worth praising Because his plans always prevail, verses 10 to 12. And thirdly, he says that God carefully watches over his people. And therefore is worthy of our praise, verses 13 to 19. And so the big outbox of Psalm 33 for us this morning is not that we should praise God because we're told to. It's that we praise God because we want to. Because that's the only reasonable response to seeing him for who he really is. He is praise 
worthy. And not only that, because praise isn't an end to itself in Psalm 33. It's meant to draw us towards a deepening trust in God. We see that in the final verses of Psalm 33. If the beginning opens with a call to praise, well, in one sense, the psalm ends with a call to trust. Verse 21. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So those are the big outboxes of Psalm 33 for us, and therefore of our time together this morning. On the one hand, joyful praise of God, and on the other hand, deepening trust in him. We'll get there firstly by looking at verses 4 to 9 together, which I've given the heading, Trust and Rejoice in God, whose word is good and powerful. Now, um, some of you will have heard of, of Sam Harris. He is a well-known author and speaker. And in the mid-2000s, he wrote a number of books which secured him the title in popular culture as one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. That's the, the colorful title that was given to him alongside Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and a man called Daniel Dennett. And rather than just going after Christians or sort of Christianity in general... Harris is particularly outspoken about the Bible itself as a text. It says to you that the Bible isn't only untrue, which you would expect, I guess, of an atheist horseman, but also that it's morally objectionable. Just listen to what he says. There's a lot of Iron Age barbarism in there and superstition, he says. I could go into a bookshop blindfolded and pull off the shelf a book which is going to have more relevance and more wisdom for the 21st century than the Bible. You know, Harris isn't the only one, not even the first one, to articulate that idea that the Bible isn't just irrelevant, but that it's a force for bad in the world. And some Christians have been kind of thrown by that, I guess, have responded to that kind of critique by trying to draw a distinction between God and his word. And so they therefore suggest that the Bible might well have errors and problems mixed into it because, well, it was written down by by people, but that God himself is really good. And so you almost have to see past the Bible, argue these Christians, to, to, to see the real God, to see how good he really is. That's a very, very common view in lots and lots of Christians, not least in our country today. And yet in Psalm 33... We see that neither of those options, the the, the Sam Harris option that thinks the Bible is bad, nor the Christian concession to Sam Harris that says the Bible isn't all that good, but that God is really good. Neither of those two options really hold any water. Because the psalmist says that God's word is really good. How do we know that it's really good? Well, because God himself is really, really good. The two are inseparable. Notice that with me. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Can you see the connection the psalmist draws there between God's character and God's word? His word is upright. It is good, verse 4. And the God whose word it is, is faithful. He loves righteousness and justice. The world is full of his steadfast love. In other words, God's word is good. 
because God himself is good. And I do think it's very helpful for us to be clear about that. Not least as we hear or engage with critiques of the Bible from people like Sam Harris or people who've read Sam Harris books. It can make Christians start to feel a bit wobbly because people like that seem to know what they're talking about. Perhaps he's right, we might start to think. Maybe the Bible isn't all that good after all. There is some quite tricky stuff in there. Well, the psalmist wants us to root our trust in the goodness of the Bible, of God's word, in our trust in the goodness of God himself. God is good. And that means that his word is good. But I wonder if if some of us, uh, well, we don't necessarily have a problem with trusting and rejoicing in the Bible because we think it's bad, but because we think it's weak. Maybe that's your response, actually, to hearing someone like Sam Harris or the particularly outspoken atheist in your office or your workplace. It isn't to, to, to worry about whether the Bible might be morally dubious, but just to worry that it feels a bit flimsy. Because their arguments can look quite impressive. They can seem to be backed by science and, 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 and progress and logic. And mine seem to be backed by a book written thousands of years ago. It isn't at all uncommon to feel like that. Which is why it helps to know that God's word isn't only good. It's also powerful. Two or three weeks ago, we went on holiday to the East Nook of Fife, uh, to a, a village called Crail. And uh, we spent a good chunk of the holiday on, on, on various beaches in varying uh, degrees of rain. And uh, we, we dug little moats in amongst the rain, and we, we, we built castles and trenches with the sand, and we funneled the seawater around them. And uh, I've counted the whole exercise to be a bit of a success, partly because none of us fell into the sea fully clothed, as had happened the last time we'd been to the beach. But partly because sand is a really easy material to manipulate, isn't it? You can dig it and pile it and shape it. And and, and so even within a short space of time, you can see your achievements right there in front of you as you you dig a moat or you build a castle. But even as we dug the very deepest hole we could, or built the tallest tower we could manage, we didn't really make a dent on the sand on the seashore. And made even less of a dent on the sea itself as we dug channels for the water or we tried to dam it up. Well, the sea level didn't suddenly start to drop. We didn't even have the slightest effect on the sea at all, actually. But that's not the case with God, says the psalmist. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. God is able to to, to pile up seawater, as the picture we're given, into a great big heap. Or to gather the depths of an ocean into a store. How? How does he do that? Verse 6, by the word of the Lord. By speaking. And that's just what we see, actually, in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 1, we read that water covered the face of the earth after God had made it. And that God gathered all the water into one place and separated the water with land, not by a magnificent feat of engineering, not with buckets and spades like we tried to on a seashore, but simply by saying a word. 
Genesis chapter 1. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear, said God. And so it was. The point is, God's word isn't just good. It's also powerful. It achieves stuff. And that has a couple of big implications for us, I think. In the first instance, it means that whilst we we want to take care to explain the Bible, to explain the good news about Jesus wisely and winsomely to colleagues and to friends, we want to carefully and thoughtfully engage with the pressure points in our culture. But at the same time, we don't have to apologize for the Bible or to feel embarrassed by it. God's word is good and powerful. Why? Well, because God is good and powerful. And as well as, as being fuel for our praise of God, I wonder if you can see how that grows our trust in him too. A well-known preacher from the 19th century said it better than I can, actually. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. And that's the first implication for us, the first question, I guess, for us, is whether we'll trust God, the God of Psalm 33, enough to let the lion loose, to speak his word, to tell people the good news of Jesus, our friends, our family, our colleagues, and our neighbors. And the second implication is is drawn out for us by the psalmist himself, actually. God's word is powerful. God's word changes stuff. We know it is because it was with a, a word that he made the world. And if you're a Christian this morning, you know that, it's, that God's word is powerful too because it was with the good news of Jesus, words about Jesus that he rescued you to himself. And that doesn't just give us confidence in the word, but in the God whose word it is. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Because you can rejoice in and trust in God's good and powerful word, well, so too you can rejoice in and trust in God himself. He is worthy of our praise and our trust and Psalm 33 of our awe as we stand before him this morning. And that's the first log on the fire of our praise this morning, if you like. The first reason for shouting a joyful sound to God that his word is good and powerful. Why? Because he is good and powerful. But that isn't the only log on the fire. We see the next one in verses 10 to 12. And it is this. I trust and rejoice in God whose plans always prevail. Now it is November 1785. And a plowman plowing a field has just accidentally destroyed a mouse's nest. The plowman notices the mouse, a small, huddled, frightened little creature, before then turning his attention to the mouse's nest, which by this stage is a write-off. 
The mouse, he says, had, had planned and prepared to live comfortably in its nest, sheltering from the winter weather to come until the plough crashed through its home. And yet the mouse isn't the only creature to realize that planning for the future, well, it can sometimes prove to be useless. Because the best laid plans of mice and of men, to quote the ploughman, gang aft aglee, or to translate that from old Scots into English so that everyone can understand, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. The Plowman was, if you don't know, the Scots poet Robert Burns. I've got a particular affinity for Burns, despite his many flaws, because he grew up in the same village as I did. That, though, isn't why I'm sharing his poem, To a Moose, but because that poem puts its finger right on the reality of, of, of human planning, of, of quite how fragile, quite how prone to being frustrated it is to plan as human beings. It's as fragile as a mouse planning for the winter, whose plans can fall apart like that. And we know that to be true from our experience, don't we? Think back to a time in your life when you you planned out your future, but things, well, they didn't go as they expected them to. When uh, office politics or serious illness got in the way of your own progress at work. When a broken relationship got in the way of your plan for a happy home life. And there wasn't a whole lot you could do about it. And we know that idea to be true, not only from our personal planning, but when we look at the world around us. Think of the the world economy right now, for example, where governments the world over are trying their best to address rising inflation, and yet no one really knows what's going to happen next month, never mind next year. People like to plan. The Bible would actually encourage us to plan. And yet at the same time, our plans so often just fall apart around our ears, don't they? But not so with God. Verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Our God, the God of the Bible, isn't just a God who makes plans about issues both big and small though he is but a God who keeps his plans whose plans always prevail and that means that trusting in him which is one of the big outboxes in this psalm remember trusting in him depending on him well it isn't just a good thing for us to do one good option among many it's the only safe thing to do can you see that And can I just say that trusting him, trusting all of your plans to him, is also a wonderfully freeing thing. Because you see, it means that as we plan, as we plan our work or our family life or our finances, well, we're neither overly confident, thinking that through our preparations we can really insulate ourselves from all of the ups and downs life might throw at us, but it also means that we aren't anxious, thinking that we have to fully insulate ourselves from all of the ups and downs of life. We can instead humbly trust in God day by day, knowing that the God who is good and powerful, verses 4 to 9 of Psalm 33, has plans which always prevail. Now what will humbly depending on God day by day look like? What will it look like to trust in God if that's one of the big outboxes of Psalm 33? But very practically, 
it'll look like praying. That's just what I've been convicted of this week. If I trust that God's plans always prevail, then I'm just being really silly by trying to plot my way through life, through the big decisions of life, without asking for his help. God's plans always prevail. That is a big reason to trust in him, to take hold of him this morning. And there is one final reason to trust and rejoice in God in Psalm 33. And it comes in verses 13 to 19. Trust and rejoice in God who watches over his people. Now, it is an extraordinary thing about human beings in general that we're able to watch the same situation through multiple different lenses at once. Let me explain what I mean. Think of, of being asked to go and watch a friend's music group performance or to your child's sports event or sports day. You go along to the event and you watch the whole thing, don't you? You watch the whole choir. You see the whole game or the whole event. But as well as watching with that sort of wide-angled lens, you also have a very particular lens, a zoom lens, if you like, for, for your own friend or for your own little one. You're watching them very closely. You care about the team or the group as a whole, but you're particularly concerned about that individual. And that's a little bit like how God sees the world in Psalm 33. The the theme of this final unit is God seeing. I wonder if you picked that up as it was read a few minutes ago. Just read verses 13 to 15 with me again. And if you'll excuse the pun, keep your eyes open for all of the seeing words or ideas as I read through those. Verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. The idea, can you see, is that the powerful ruling God of of, of verses 10 to 12, he isn't aloof from the world he's made, but that he looks down on it. And he sees people. That the one who made our hearts sees our hearts. And yet, as well as seeing all people, everyone he's made, he does have a very particular eye for some people particularly. Verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The eye of God, which in one sense sees everyone, all of the created order, all of the people he's made, has a particular zoom lens for his people, on people who fear him, says the psalmist. And it's on them, not in a a, a sort of threatening way, like a teacher might tell a, a, a troublemaker in their class, I've got my eye on you, but in a protective, caring way, as a parent might watch their child in a playground to make sure they don't fall off one of uh, the toys there. Now, you might not have had a problem with the first chunk, I guess, of Psalm 33, with the idea that the God of the Bible is powerful. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, or, or, or that he's in control, his plans always come to pass. What you might be less sure about is whether he cares about you. Well, the author of Psalm 33 would assure you that if you're one of his people, 
If you're someone who has trusted in Jesus, then he really, really does. And you can trust in him to watch over you in a caring, in a protective way. Now, I'm well aware that might leave some of us with some fairly significant questions in the face of circumstances we might have faced in life. If God's watching over me, like Psalm 33 suggests, why do I still have such difficult times in life? Why has my course of treatment not worked as I'd hoped it would? Why has that broken relationship not been mended yet? Why has my childlessness not resolved itself? Where is this helper when I need him? Well, as painful as all of those things are, and it is right to call them for what they are, they are acutely painful. The promise of Psalm 33, the promise of the Christian faith as a whole, as a whole is not of a shortcut. It's not of a comfortable ride through life. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that, that God promises to walk through the valleys with his people, and we'll think more on that actually in a couple of Sundays' time. But it's not that he'll whisk us out of them. That isn't the kind of help he promises to give. He does promise, though, to keep his people going on the journey. To guard us and guide us through the kinds of trouble that would take us out altogether. Notice the two examples in Psalm 33. Protection from death and from famine that would stop people on the journey altogether. And if you still doubt that that's really true, that God really does care for you, if you aren't quite sure how committed he is to our ultimate good, to rescuing you from death eternally, well, just look at the cross of Jesus. We've thought of that this morning, haven't we? Where the one who authored life, who sustains the universe by the word of his power, himself tasted death. In order that you, if you've trusted in in him for yourself, though you would die, could enjoy eternal life. Now despite what it might look like sometimes, or how it sometimes might feel, if you are one of God's people, you can trust that he's watching over you in a very particular way. Protectively, in a caring way. And you can trust that he'll do so all the way into eternity. And we do need to be reminded of that. Because there is an alternative to trusting in God and to relying on him for rescue and for security and for for ultimate salvation. And that alternative is to trust in anything else. And that is a far more precarious way to live, and yet a very common one. Verse 16. The king, writes the psalmist, is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by his great might, it cannot rescue. The example the psalmist uses is is of a king planning for battle, thinking that having a great army around him or a well-trained cavalry will guarantee his victory, will make sure that he's safe. At the end of the day, and to be honest, you can understand in one sense why having a large army might give you a sense of security. But it isn't a silver bullet. And ultimately, that sense of security, well, it might well be a false sense of security. And so too will anything else we look to for security, other than the Creator God. Nothing and no one else can save us. 
A friend of ours retired a couple of years ago, having worked very hard all of her life. Had saved a chunk of her money for her retirement, enough to, to live on and to give her a buffer for any unexpected expenses she might face in her later years. And within a year or so, I think, of her retiring, she fell victim to a fraud. And uh, she lost pretty much the lot. And uh, you can almost feel your stomach drop, can't you? It was dreadful, really dreadful. And when you find yourself in that situation, completely confident shattering, the buffer that you've given yourself, the protection from all that life might throw at you, gone in a heartbeat. But in the cold light of day, reflecting back, it does make you ask, if it can all go south quite so quickly as that, how secure was it in the first place? Let me ask you a pretty blunt question. Does your approach towards money or to work or to family, does your approach suggest that you think it'll protect you from whatever life might throw at you? Please don't mishear what I'm saying. Family is a good gift from God. Work is a really important thing. The Bible encourages us to, to plan and to save financially. But listen, if your finances take no heed of the fact that it could be taken from you tomorrow, if your work is where you find your ultimate security, it is just worth asking yourself, how secure am I really? The psalmist would have us trust in someone who won't let us down. Who hasn't let us down. Who can't be taken from us. In God himself. And he's giving us every reason to trust in him. Because this God's word is good and it is powerful. Because this God's plans always prevail. And because he watches carefully and protectively over his people. Listen, the God of the Bible is absolutely worthy of your praise. And he is absolutely worthy of your trust. If you've never placed your trust in him before, let me please encourage you to reflect on that today. How secure are the things that you're trusting instead of him? And if you have already trusted in him, well, let's ask for his help to grow. To grow in trust and to grow as a people in our joy in the goodness of our God together. Let's pray and ask for that help together now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you as the God who is worthy of all praise, who is just and loving, whose word is just and loving, who is powerful whose word is powerful, whose plans never fail, who sees and cares for his people. And so, Lord, we acknowledge before you this morning that you are the only safe place for us to be. You're unlike any other. You are worthy of our praise and of our trust. Would you please this morning tune our hearts to sing that praise, whether for the first time, or to sing it all the more clearly over the course of today and all the days to come. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.